Listening to the Bring Them Home Aliyah podcast, hosted by Josh Wander. Welcome back to Bring Them Home. This is Josh Wander from Yerushalayim. I'm here sitting with Rav Nachman Kahana. Uh, it's Parshas Devarim. It's uh, the nine days right before Tisha B'Av. A very difficult time, in all accounts, uh, for the Jewish people, and uh, even more so today when we're living with so many tragedies happening to the Jewish people around the world. And uh, again, we are very excited and happy to hear what uh, Rav Nachman has to say about current events and, uh, and the parsha. Shalom, everybody. You're right, uh, Josh. Very difficult time these days. Uh, bring back to memory not only of the Choban, Chobanot, which have been enough, but all the other things that happened to the Jewish people in 3,000 years of a very difficult history and cumulating, we hope, in the, it shouldn't be any more than the Shoah. That's it. When I say that, I, I have an, an intention. These are difficult days, but I recall an incident. It goes back many years ago, my youngest daughter, <coughs> I took her to the Kotel on Tisha B'Av at night. And uh, she learned in school and everything, prepared that Tisha B'Av we cry and we mourn tzarot. I took her down to the hotel and everyone is sitting there and they're saying the keynote, different, uh, different ethnic groups, Taimani, Moroccans, European, everything. And then we're sitting, she's sitting right next to me at some point, she pulls my sleeve and says, Abba, Matai Bochim, when you're supposed to cry, nobody was crying. People saying, Kinot, not saying, Echa, but nobody's crying. Something is in Am Yisrael, we're sad. We missed the Beit HaMikdash. But no one is crying today. Because deep down, subconsciously, we know Medinat Israel is the Rishit Michal Gulatenu, the beginning of the flourishing of our Gula, deep down. Of course, there's always some, some people that know, no, no, no matter what Hashem does, they'll always deny Him, either because they're atheists or because they're too from. But the point is, Medinat Israel is the only hope that we have, the Jewish people. It couldn't have come at a better time, except, in my opinion, Medina Israel came 100 years too late. It should have come in 1848. We had Gedolei Torah and the winter been a Shoah. But it came at the time that the Shoah wanted 1948, not 1848. Okay. That's what I said this week, that uh, the Jews that are in Chutzlarts today, it's, that's the Churban. What we have here is the, the Nachama, we have the Nachamas, the Jews that are flourishing here in, in, in ah, Israel. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Pashat uh, Masai. Last week, 
<coughs> and then an unscrupulous lawyer was instructed by a wealthy secret client or secretly wealthy client that after his death the lawyer should tell his son of the great fortune that his father had accumulated and could bequeath to him as an inheritance. Big fortune. The father passed away, but the lawyer never informed the son of the vast treasure that was his. What can someone say regarding the conduct of this lawyer who withheld from the son or was rightfully his? What can you say about it? Okay, I'll come back to this at the end. There is suddenly a miss in the request of the tribes of Reuben and God to relinquish their tribal homesteads in the west bank of the Jordan River with the other 11 tribes in favor of pasture lands conquered from Sichon and Og in the areas east of the Jordan. What happened to the dream of reaching the Holy Land whose more sanctified districts were at the west of the Jordan? And after suffering the hardships of 40 years in the desert for it, why did they barter away their superior homesteads for grazing lands? Very strange. I offer the following reason for the strange and even, quote, un-Jewish request. That Moshe was prohibited from crossing the Jordan River was no secret. The tribes knew that after seven years of conflict against the 31 Canaanite city-states in the western part of the land and an additional seven years <coughs> additional seven years of apportioning the individual parts of land, the agricultural laws, types, the sabbatical year, etc., would come into effect. However, this could only be valid in the areas of the Holy Land which were officially settled by a tribe through the Lachic process of drawing of lots directed by Yeshua ben Nun and Aaron and Elazar Koinagadol. In other words, if no tribe were to settle the eastern bank of the Jordan, then that area would be unlogically inferior in some way to the apportioned areas in the western side in terms of many halachot. In their minds, it was inconceivable that Moshe Rabbeinu, the preeminent master of Torah, and the binding force between our Father in heaven and the Jewish nation will be buried outside of the major sanctified areas of the land and in a logically inferior part of the land. Under the pretext of the necessity for grazing lands, the tribes of Reuben and God planned to populate the areas <coughs> to the east of the Jordan. <coughs> in this way, they withdraw the sanctity of the west to the east and provide Moshe Rabbeinu with the sanctity of Eretz Israel, all the while abiding by Hashem's decree that Moshe could not pass over to the west bank of the Jordan. An ingenious plan indeed. Moshe ascended Mount Nebo in the area allotted to the tribe of Reuven, and then Hashem transferred his body to the deep gorge in the tribe area of God. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was buried in Eretz Israel was Reuben and God brought the Kedushah to the eastern side by settling there. But, nevertheless, Hashem's decree was, was abided by. Moshe did not pass over the Jordan River. To our great sorrow, we are witnessing a phenomenon in the United States 
diametrically opposed to the spirit of the, and the law of what motivated the tribes of Reuben and God, and later to include half the tribe of Manasseh. What is the phenomena? Wannabe postkim are disassociating the Holy Land from the possession of good and trusting Jews by declaring that one should not go on Aliyah. This is in stark contract to what the tribes of Reuben and God did by bringing the Holy Land into the possession of Moshe Rabbeinu. These so-called postkim are taking Eretzel away from the Jewish people. Despite all the miracles we have experienced here in the Holy Land, there are still contemporary spiritual leaders in the Galut who disseminate their halachic, quote, decisions that Jews must wait patiently in the Galut and suffer whatever might come upon them till the Mashiach appears. Many rabbinic sources state that just as every Jew has his place in the world to come, so too does every Jew have a part in Eretz Israel, including the tribe of Levi. So by depriving a Jew from his innate possession, these rabbinic figures are no different than the lawyer in the story I wrote about in the beginning. I once met a survivor who told me that whoever was in Bergen Belsen for 10 minutes can justifiably say Hallel every day in Eretz Israel. And these post my sources in certain contemporary forms, not about the Satma, but American born rabbis, Pasking us so you know that come to Eretz Israel. They are stealing the Jewish inheritance from the Jewish people. Just like the lawyer did not tell the son what's waiting for him, the great fortune his father left him. Okay, let's go on to a little bit more. It says in Breshit, I'll give to you and to your descendants after you, where you now reside as a foreigner, the whole land of Canaan as an everlasting portion, and I will be their God. What does it mean? I'll give them merit to soil, and there I will be their God. Rashi explains. What does it mean, I will be their God? Rashi says, There I shall be your God. Rashi says, And there in Eretz Israel, I will be their God. I will give you Eretz Israel, and there I will be their, your God. Meaning, a Jew who willingly lives in Chutz Eretz is as if he is without Hashem. That's what Rashi says. The Sifti Chachamim, an explanation on Rashi, writes the following, and I'll translate it. Eretz Israel is Hashem's personal domain, which He shows for Himself, while all the lands outside of Eretz Israel, Hashem relegated to ministers, meaning heavenly entities like angels. Therefore, whoever lives in Chutz Eretz is as if he consciously, premeditatedly removed himself from Hashem's guidance authority as it would be. In conclusion, dear friends, Eretzel is not a game. It is a major factor in deciding where one's place will be when his life is terminated in this world. Where will he be in the next world? Have a meaningful fast. It might be the last time you fast on Tisha B'Av. 
which according to the prophet Zechariah, will eventually turn into a day of joy. Shabbat Shalom B'chotuv. Nachmakana. I just uh, came back from a, uh, a ride. I was driving a certain Rosh Hashiva, uh, and I, he lives in America, and I was speaking to him about uh, living here in Eretz Yisrael, and he, was, he said to me, when Mashiach comes, he's, he, hopefully Mashiach will come and he'll, he'll be able to stay here. He won't go back to America. I said, why, why do you have to wait for Mashiach? So he said, well, of course, there's going to be a base of Migdash. I said, and, and therefore, what, 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 what does that mean that there's going to be a base of Migdash, so therefore you're going to live here th- then and not now? So he says to me, well, the, the carbon Talmud. I said, are you a Kohen? He says, no. I said, well, you're not going to be bringing the carbon Talmud, so what do you, what, what's the difference if you're here now? He says, I'm going to be closer to that place. I said, you could be closer to that place now. Why, why do you need to wait for Mashiach and the base of Migdash? You can be here now. A friend of mine, uh, the Rav also knows him, Elio Berkowitz, wrote on his, uh, on his uh, social media, on Facebook, he wrote, Thinking about Tishabav, it is a bit insulting for Jews to mourn the temple while refusing to move here and start rebuilding. I was thinking when he wrote that, that statement that uh, there's a halacha that says that when somebody goes and sees the Makoma Mikdash for the first time in 30 days, there's a halacha that he has to tear kriya, he has to tear his clothes in mourning. And uh, if a person hasn't seen it in 30 days, so a fascinating thing that is said by Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach Zatzal, he says that if a person is living here in, in, in the area of Yushalayim and he doesn't bother coming once in 30 days to the Mokom Mikdash, he says then, then he shouldn't tear Kriya because obviously he doesn't care enough. If he really cared enough, he'd be coming to the coastal. Every he would come, come to, to the Mokom Mikdash, he would, he would come here once a month. If, he doesn't, if, he li- if you live in the area and you're not coming, obviously you don't really care. And I, I sort of have that same feeling when it comes to Tisha B'Av, people are mourning Tisha B'Av, people are, I'm, I'm not even sure if they know what they're mourning when they're in Chutz Laaretz, but they have an opportunity to, to come here today, and they don't. So what does that mean? What does that mean to the Rav? I don't know. i just tell you a little story. A few years ago, a very good friend of mine, Rav, Rav, Rav Shmuel Derlech, very serious Rav, is a rabbi, he's helped him over 30 years in the army here. I was walking down the street in the old city and I see him. He see, he's very agitated. I said, Rashmuel, what happened? He said, don't ask. What happened just now? What? Tell me. He says, I was in Rehobah Yehudim and two women approached me, Tatiot, middle age, and asked me, where is the Cardo? The Cardo is an old Roman street. And I said to them, the Cardo is 20 meters from here. Okay. And then I said to these two women, when are you coming to Israel to live? They're from Muncie. And one, the older woman says emphatically, never. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get over it. She says, never in such an emphatic way. How does the Jewish daughter talk that way? I can't come now, I can't live, but never? Is that her upbringing? That's the place where she lives. That's the, that's the influence of, the, of her teachers, Rabbanim. Never. There's certain people, when it comes there to sound, there's a scratch in the brain. And no one can understand how they think and why it happened. Someone once said a very interesting thing. 
We're talking about art. My wife is an artist. She says, art is a thing of love. Either you love the picture or you don't love the picture. Either you love Eritasur or you don't love Eritasur. That's what it is. And don't have to explain. We don't have to be psychiatrists. Just know that the thing about Eritasur is not a question of religion. It's a question for psychiatrists. How, after 2,000 years of davening to come here, and Hashem lets you come here, and you don't come, that's not a religious question. That's for a good psychiatrist. I asked my children around the Shabbos table, I think last week, maybe it was after Shabbos Matamos, I asked my children, when is it that we're going to stop fasting? What needs to happen for us to stop fasting? And they had, I would say, standard Jewish answers when Mashiach comes, when there's a base of Migdash. Uh, and, and traditionally, that is the, that is, those are the opinions that we follow, that when, until the Beit HaMikdash is built, we are going to continue fasting. But it's, it's fascinating, I said at the table, that there are many Rishonim that see it very differently. There are many Rishonim that say that we can stop fasting already when there's no more we're out of the the Shibud Malchiot. Uh, there are Gemarot that speak about the fact that when B'Shalom, we, we, we don't have to fast when the, when the Jewish people. And in fact, there were times when the Beit HaMikdash was here that we were under foreign rule. And today we're in a unique position in Jewish history where we're under our own sovereign nation. And uh, according to, it seems to me, according to many Rishonim, we shouldn't even fast. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't. But it, it's it's fascinating perspective on what we're living in today. We're living in a, in, a, in, a, in a unique time in Jewish history, where for the perhaps for the first time in two thousand years, the Jewish people are in control of the government here. Whether you like the government or not, they have their own army, and uh, and it could be that we're we're already on the way to not fasting, and the people that are still in in Galut, the people that are still living. In Chutzlar, it's, I don't think that they're even taking a step in that direction. Do you have any thoughts about that? I had an idea, which uh, came to my best my mind, that all these Rabbanim, I'm talking about the plain people, the plain Jewish people, they're all tzaddikim. But these people, the Rabbanim, the Paschal, not to come here, it doesn't matter how long the beard is, how long the pay is, it doesn't matter. We should make a list. Whoever spoke against Aliyah should be on a list that they cannot come here to Israel, even after Mashiach comes. You spoke against the land, the land doesn't want you. But I didn't, uh, I, I could bring this up to uh, serious people, but like members of the Knesset, but I don't want to be the bad one. It just reminds me of a medrash that even Rashi even brings it. But so we had some medrash that when Hashem brought about the death of so many Jewish people, time of the, the plague of darkness, Moshe Benes says to Hashem, "Why did you kill so many Jewish people?" And it's Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, "Moshe, you know what? I left two for you. See how you're going to deal with two. Forget about the millions. One is called Datam, the other is called." And let's say I deal with him. Datam made Moshe Menes' life miserable. Miserable. Imagine if a million be like that, Datam 
But Hashem seems, seems in every generation he leaves people like Tatam Babiram, Tatam Babiram, to make, to go to the opposite way, to show that the, the waters go upstream, not downstream. And what can you say? I, I'm so much, went through so many things, I saw so many people. That's, that's nothing I came down by, I told you. Either you have it or you don't have it. If you don't have it, you have what they call the casada, a thing in your brain that nobody can understand who you are. There was a, uh, there was a historic asifa this week in Lakewood where the people gathered to discuss, to come on uh, in a group, in a kezakol kihila, to Eretz Yisrael and make aliyah. And uh, they put up pashkevilim, they put up notices on the boards there, and I'll just read the notice that I that I was that I received uh, against this asifa, against this meeting. It says a public alert to Lakewood residents. Recently, there has been a wave of anonymous ads placed in Lakewood publications, encouraging Yunga Light to move to Israel. All kinds of promises are being made: English-speaking schools, Parnosa, affordable housing. Now they are urging everybody to join an ASIFA for more information. Beware! Several Zionist and secular organizations who do not openly identify themselves in an attempt to trick unsuspected readers who might be hesitant in getting involved with them have been positively identified here as being behind these efforts. These ads also make reference to support from Gedolim but refuse to identify any. There are no Gedolim behind this. Don't be fooled. Be sure to discuss this with your Rav for guidance before joining into any Asifa. And for more information, you should contact blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I thought that perhaps the, this would have been a perfect, uh, a perfect notice from the Miraglim. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts? I'll tell you, they're making a mistake. Say there's no Gedolim standing behind the court there at Israel. I can tell exactly how many there are. 22,628. That's the number of soldiers that were killed defending this country. They had the Gdolim saying, I gave my life for the Jewish people. Come, get underneath the, there's a bitoy, mitach la nunka. Nunka is a stretcher. It's a meaning that come, soldiers go under the stretcher and they take a wounded soldier. Come, get under the stretcher. Become part of it. What can you say? I just say one thing. I don't know, Rabbi Shalom, why you did it. But you gave me and my wife, Seichel, to come here 60 years ago. And all the ups and downs and all the, all the tests, all the problems and, and army and things. Not one day did we ever, ever say, look back, say, why do we come? Let's go back. Even the most difficult times, and we saw, on the other hand, my, our life here was like a, just like a, just a miracle. So many miracles. I'm sure I'm not just me. Many of my friends feel the same way. That, uh, that it's just a, a gift that Hashem gave us to come back here. And uh, I just, I'd like to give, I'd like to explain this gift to other people. But how can you explain a red ball to a blind man that never touched a ball? They can't explain a red ball to a man who's born blind. You talk and you talk and you talk and you talk to the wall. 
Okay, the end is you lie in the bed that you make. But there's a day of judgment. There's a day. I recall that Nachman Breslava said the day that you were born is the day that Hashem decided the world cannot exist without you. You have to come. But then there's a limit. Then the day Hashem decides that the world does not need you. And you go away. They have a din v'cheshbo. Now remember, every word is remembered as ayin ayin shomat. Hashem sees, Hashem hears, Hashem records everything. The days of a life of a person are very short. How, 80 years, 90 years, not a long time at all. You have to do the best, best you can. And you have to do it honestly. Don't lie to Hashem, don't lie to yourself. If you're accepting a, a, a psak din of some rabbi in Borough Park, he's giving away your future, Habibi. That's what it is. Anyway, one thing, let me say, I love your Hebrew. It took me time to get to where the Sifa, it means a Sefa. A Sefa, it took me time. To I was, I was reading it in English, actually, yeah. but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the English word for a Sefa. In Hebrew, the syllable is on the last syllable, not on the first one. The so, syllable. So the Rebetzin of this Rosh Hashiva was just taking along. Mm -hmm. When he, she heard I was so involved with Eretz Israel, she says, what triggered you to come to Eretz Israel? What convinced you? I didn't have an answer for her. I, I told her the story that uh, Rav Nachman has sent over many times. The story about, uh, about when you're called up to an aliyah to the Torah, so they call your name, Yamod, this and this person, then, then whatever. And the uh, same thing is with when a person comes there as Israel. Like they have a, uh, there has to be a, has to be a calling in Shemayim for that person to uh, merit to come here. And, uh, and that's really what I felt. I don't, I don't think that I have any special... Maybe I have schutavot. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but it just uh, some a feeling that I have in me, and it's not something that I. Uh, I don't think there was an event that triggered my desire to move here. It was just something that I was born with. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But there is a point I like to make. There is an say like uh, the the story of Cook. Uh, someone came to Cook and asked him, uh, "Why is it that certain people?" leave the country. And he said in Mashal, an example, he said, there was, there was a young man that wanted, remember Rabbi saying, wanted to ask, uh, to meet a young lady, go on a date. But she didn't really want to go with him, she knew. But she didn't want to hurt his feelings. Anyway, so she went. But she didn't prepare herself, didn't put on a nice dress, didn't comb her hair. She went, you know, sloppy because that. Why? Because she wants him to get the idea that he doesn't like her. And then he, she won't be embarrassed telling him. There is an ugly side to life also. And people that Hashem, that Eretzer doesn't want them to be here, shows them the ugly side of life. People say, oh, take a look at the politics, take a look at this, take a look at that. All that shtuyot. What's happening every day in the country is a camouflage that Hashem doesn't want you to see the greatest of the country. But not everybody is, has that gift. And remember, when Hashem does something, it's always camouflage. If you want to know, if you understand what Hashem is doing, don't look what's happening now. You have to go 20 moves afterwards. Like the masters of chess. It depends how many moves that you can see ahead. If one can see 20 moves ahead, 
and the competitor is 19 moves, he's going to win. You have to be able to see, not what Bennett said, or what Bibi said, or what that, that's shtuyot. That's camouflage. You have to be smarter than that. Go beyond it. Where are we going? I say in Hebrew, Begadol. You look at the big picture. Where is this country going? This country is going, becoming more religious, becoming wealthier, becoming stronger every single day. So don't be sidetracked by uh, what little politicians do. You have to see the big picture. Thank you very much, and uh, Shabbat Shalom. And we hope that uh, we'll be not fasting already uh, come this, uh, this Sunday. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Bring Them Home Aliyah podcast. If you identify with our message, please subscribe and tell your friends about us too. You can leave us a review on iTunes, as that really helps us grow. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. For sponsorship opportunities and for all other inquiries, please email us at bringthemhomeisrael at gmail.com. Check out our website at www.israeltorah.org for more content on this vital topic. This is my home.